Hi friends, welcome back to Millennials Bully. I know it's been a while, but I haven't forgotten you. We are back with a special green series. A lot has been said about us millennials being green, but is there a case to be made that millennials are actually green aware? Now we will be exploring this and all things green in this series with a host of green guests. Hi listeners, welcome back to the Green Series. Today we are speaking to the inspiring John Paul Jose, a youth climate activist from India. Thank you for being here with us, John. Hi Preeti, uh, happy to be here and looking forward to a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for being here as well, John. Um, it's it's really exciting to have you on because I think the work that you've been doing as well as the story that you share um, with other climate activists, I think will be something that will be very interesting for our listeners um, today. Um, so just to start us off really, John, could you tell us a bit about your background? How did you start your journey with climate activism? So uh, I come from an agriculture family and also I live in Kerala. It's uh, known for its natural beauty. And so these two situations actually connected me to nature and to interact with species and see the beauty of nature. At the same time, as a student, uh, learning about various social issues, I was also driven to like engage in social activism. And that's how I began to understand about environmental issues across the globe and even in India. So I began to get involved in environmental activism. But when I moved from my home, to cities, it was difficult because it's a concrete place and I couldn't get the interactions which I used to have at home with the nature because those things were lacking in the cities. So I began to like volunteer for small organizations, co-founding civic groups and also engage in activities like replanting. So gradually uh, there were like various uh, projects coming up that is uh, ecologically destructive. So we began to organize and began to start protest. So more I began to get involved more I began to know about the issues, like underlying issues, and also began to get involved further. So that actually led me further into climate activism because it's with the environmental issues laying foundations for the crisis here. But at the same time, climate crisis get worse due to we already have a lot of environmental issues. So I began to switch to both because both are very much important and arrived at the idea of uh, climate justice activism. Yeah. Well, that, I think you have a wonderful story there, um, John. And I think what's really amazing with uh, what you're saying as well is as you're speaking, I can, in fact, hear the birds and, and the environment sort of coming to life um, in Kerala where you're at at the moment. Um, and you spoke a little bit about how you were from an agricultural family. Um, so how did that affect your view of the environment? Yeah, so in uh, agriculture, we like always have an interaction with nature. For instance, even if we expect something in return, we kind of uh, uh, grow something and that if it's a tree or if it's a plant, it's we plant it and when it grows, it bears fruit. And when we uh, learn through this process, it's like there's a lot of lessons we learn. So while digging up, we see at worms, then uh, we put manure and we see again interaction of more uh, uh, millipedes and also uh, when uh, when the like plants or trees flower, then there are bees. Then then when there is fruit, there are like birds coming up. So all those interactions, we kind of uh, sometimes we kind of move away from the fear of nature. So sometimes we uh, had fear for millipedes. So when we get interacts more with soil, we kind of take it in our hands. Uh, 
similarly at worms. And also sometimes while seeing snakes, we might run away, but sometimes we go after them. So when we have like more uh, like interactions with nature. So gradually it uh, moves uh, up, upwards, like we get to have like more interaction with nature, like because it's like we, we cannot deny the beauty of nature and also the kind of landscape which we live here. So if we understand the landscape and ecosystem, we also uh, have some duty or to sustain our agriculture, we have to also take into account the ecosystem and the landscape. So naturally the one idea of like conservation comes up. So there are like streams flowing around here and it, it is something which never dies. So it's kind of every monsoon it gets revived and it's a per permanent place for the uh, stream. So we have to kind of protect it. So it, it, it has to sustain because that is also the source of water for many of this region. Then also there are like uh, rocky areas which we leave uh, untouched because we cannot grow anything there. So it's, it stands as something like a microforest where species like snake, uh, porcupine, then uh, birds, every, everything interacts. And also there are like a lot of uh, wild uh, plants flowering around. So bees are there. So this is the kind of like interactions which we keep growing when we get more connected with uh, nature. And agriculture is one of the key space where we could connect with nature and engage in the uh, space of conservation. Yeah. I think that's a really beautiful way of putting it. And I, and I think, like you said, um, nature really is um, the source of life, isn't it? And, and by keeping it sustained, that is really how we continue uh, to move and grow in our environment. Um, so now that you have sort of moved into the city areas slightly, um, has life been different for you, um, sort of being away from, um, I guess, nature in the traditional sense where it's, it's surrounded by you? Because I guess cities in, um, in India as well, I know they are, you know, filled with buildings and cars and, and things like that. So how has that changed sort of moving to the city for you? Yeah, so in, in the rural area, we kind of like, whether it's going for walking or going to school, we have like uh, close interactions with nature. So uh, for instance, if uh, the streams are overflowing through roads, we kind of like uh, keep the leaves away and make it flow again. And then if we move around, we kind of like, well, even if we live here, we practice agriculture. So we have that constant interactions with nature. But in the cities, we only have like an interactions with nature, uh, something that is remaining of urbanizations. For instance, if we cut down all forests, and if uh, some patches remain, then that's what we only see in uh, cities. And also something which is artificial, like something equal to the plantations which we have in rural areas. So similar to that we have in cities, like even if there are small patches of a forest area, they clear it and kind of bring in uh, different species there, like to bring that aesthetic beauty. Because if, if it's uh, like when we call like a kind of wilderness, which we see here, it, it's not being seen in cities because if, if there are forests as well, if there are like creepers uh, moving up to the trees or if there are like uh, small plants uh, growing under the tree, then it's all being removed, only trees being placed and there are like lawns being laid. So it's completely against the idea of what a forest should be. And if we are like trying to protect nature or species, it all, it's all only for the city landscape and for aesthetic beauty, which city brings in the concept of nature. So cities doesn't see nature as a place where that uh, help us to sustain ourselves and the space where that that uh, we could uh, like interact constantly to stress out, to relax, rather than it is just a space where like to 
like a more of a capitalized form of uh, species and the land yeah. yeah well i think that's really interesting because um i i kind of went the other way with um with my life in the city because i grew up in the city um and then now i'm working sort of in an area that's slightly more suburban in a sense and i think my appreciation of for nature has really um come alive in that process i think because i you know I, i've always grown up you know surrounded by buildings and and cars and and people you know it's very rare to even see an animal or you know um some form of tree when we walk um so yeah it's uh it's it's quite interesting i guess in that sense that we are um you know shifting and and you know we learn from our different life experiences okay so um my next question for you john is um we have been talking about the monsoon season and it is the monsoon season currently even here uh in malaysia right now and just a few days ago in fact um parts of malaysia was actually affected by flooding which led to really severe devastation among communities in malaysia and in 2018 in fact you were a spokesperson about the flood situation in kerala so it is clear that many countries across the globe i guess suffer from this arguably preventable phenomenon and with your experience in hand with activism that you have done what are your thoughts on how we can better prepare ourselves to avoid floods like this and if it does happen as in the case um, of malaysia right now how do we recover from events like these yeah uh, so uh, like one of the biggest flood which uh, kerala had ever seen was in uh, 1924 that was the largest then after that next came in 2018 then since then we had like until uh, this year even in uh, like uh, northwest monsoons we in northeast monsoon we uh, saw like floods that is like two floods in in one year so it is kind of like a continuation since 2018 so we are seeing constant floods uh, since uh, 2018 so those things never used to happen so that itself says like uh, climate change is real and the impacts are being felt across the globe especially in a southern region in countries like india malaysia and all so it's there is one reason which exacerbated the flooding is because the kind of land use changes so like i said the impacts of climate crisis exacerbates in countries like uh, india because we have like a long uh, ecological destructive developments because those things lay uh, foundations for Uh, exacerbating the situation of climate crisis so we had like more than 8 lakh hectares of uh, wetlands like some used to be paddy field some used to be left idle so those used to be uh, flood plains because whenever there are floods initially the excess floods which actually accumulate in those flood plains then if those flood uh, wetlands doesn't uh, have the capacity to accommodate extra uh, water coming for due to excess rain then that itself uh, like overflows and bigs to uh, flood the other low lying regions so those used to be situations now we have hardly around 1 to 2 lakh hectares of uh, wetlands so that itself shows like we have lost around 6 lakh hectares of catchment area for flood water so that means 6 lakh uh, hectares of uh, areas which either residential areas agricultural land or some infrastructural areas those those areas are going to be flooded year after year and this practice has continues uh, further because we continue to clear off remaining wetlands for industrial use and also for constructions 
Then similarly, uh, Western Guards is one of the UNESCO World Heritage Site. So Western Guards are source of major rivers and also uh, retains a lot of water, uh, like if it's excess rain or anything. So with uh, clearing of uh, Western Guards, one is deforestation, other is uh, fossil fuel infrastructure, uh, like transmission lines, then mining. And one of the rampant issues which we have is uh, quarrying. So practices like uh, quarrying, uh, it's like uh, like it completely divert the streams and local uh, flow of water which we have around here. So for instance, we have like around five or six streams uh, like flowing around in, in the 100 acre land, which is like around here. So, but uh, two of them died instantly due to plantations, like changing uh, land use. And other three could die anytime soon due to a threat of quarry. So this, all this water could move to different directions and begin to flow in a different directions. So if there is climate change and excess rainfall, then all of this are going to be emptied into a different region. And th those regions are going to be get flooded instead of equal distribution because all those uh, six uh, streams used to get emptied in a different location. So, and actually uh, like uh, influencing the water availability and uh, quenching the thirst of soil and people there. So those dynamics of nature and ecosystem are completely changing due to unscientific development because when we say about development or any other infrastructure, it only sees oh, five or like maximum 10 years. It doesn't see next 50 or 100 years. So that's the issue which we face because even after the recent floods, there are like attempts to bring large scale development projects across the floodplains and also increasing uh, quarrying, the large, large scale other projects coming up, ignoring the reality of climate crisis and also the climate science. Then another thing is uh, all those impacts of uh, uh, climate crisis and issues like floods, the, the toll and economic loss is more in rural areas because we doesn't see the kind of resilience or mitigation adaptations being funded in cities in uh, areas like uh, in, in that of a rural area. So after cities, we have more resilience in coastal regions. So, but even in coastal regions, that is more or like, it's not much of the scientific. It is mainly the traditional investments being laid. And so if I could, that, sorry, if I could just add in here, um, John, so does that mean that in India, floods generally happen in the rural areas compared to the cities? Or is it, or do you see that it's now, you know, an equal amount of flooding that happens in both parts of India? Yeah, uh, there are flooding happening in both the areas, but in, in both the areas, the like the foundation is laid in a different way. So if we see uh, cities like Chennai and Delhi, the increasing situation of uh, flooding is due to uh, the infrastructure, the drainage, because there, there used to be like numerous streams and lakes both the cities had, and like I said, floodplains. And those things are getting impacted and affected because they are completely uh, like, uh, like erased or not being seen because those are like uh, what, what say nothing remains because they, the, this city is already developed and no more lakes or floodplains exist. But in rural areas, like I said, to prevent further flooding, we have like solutions that is to protect remaining floodplains and to restore it. That is very much easy in rural area because people rely on agriculture and uh, bringing in new uh, projects means then this agriculture interactions is being lost. 
livelihood is being lost and this floodplains is being lost and in cities like it's completely constructed concretized and it is sometimes difficult to uh, bring in uh, the idea of conservation and to restore because we have to completely remove all those uh, cities uh, constructions and also we have to uh, depopulate and rehabilitate a lot of people living cities so that is a difficult situation so that's why in cities we have more of resilience and uh, mitigations funding or adaptation in cities uh, to counter those floods because if if there is a small rain happens then there is flash floods due to issue with uh, drainage and there is no space of water to move out but in rural area like even if it's a valley or even if it's a, like a stream a small city around the river it's completely gets flooded so that's because like changing landscape and due to a climate a crisis so that's again like the sometimes it's difficult for people to bounce back because everything is being lost because like people directly depend on nature for survival and the nature itself is changing so it's difficult for people to change yeah yeah i think if i could um bring in some of uh, our experiences right now in malaysia right now is is that it it was rare for a city area like um you know like shah alam at the moment shah alam was badly hit by floods and even really big parts of klang um was affected and these are really big parts of um of the selangor state which is pretty much uh, one of the core states in malaysia um and i guess some some parts of those places would even be considered sort of more urbanized areas and so it was quite a shock for us a few days ago to have had this huge flood situation in in the city areas because we're used to floods happening in malaysia in rural areas like kuantan for example which is you know it's very much an area that always gets hit by um by flood but it is a slightly more suburban and sort of rural area um so i guess now we're having to in malaysia having to sort of um try to understand how this happened why did it happen and i think you've really explained in a lot of ways how this has happened and i think changing landscape and you know construction sites and and how that's being built upon has been um has has sort of led to this happening um and i think also the monsoon we've we've been told that you know that rain uh, the rain has been the most uh, in malaysia this year with um, in 100 years in fact um do you think rain is really the big core um factor into floods or do you think there is a lot of other issues that's actually happening uh, behind the scenes when it comes to flooding john yeah the advent of monsoon within like 5 or 10 days it's getting flooded because we are getting excess rain than normal so same goes for like you said for malaysia like excess rain for like 100 year high so even we are hitting records like 100 year high or 1000 year record of excess rainfall even in summer like so last year we didn't have a sum, uh, summer actually because throughout the year it was continuous raining uh, it was completely wet so like as i come from agriculture field uh, uh, family i could also share like like some kind of a stress period is required for Uh, plants to uh, flower like especially those crops like coffee or anything like sometimes 50 to 60 days of stress period to flower and to bear fruit so those stress periods uh, comes through heat and that happens during uh, like a uh, mild summer time and there was no such stress periods uh, due to excess rain so that affected uh, these crops so this uh, changing thing actually like we know uh, climate change is changing the uh like all overall rainfall and everything and yes rainfall is like one of the major factor that influencing excess uh flooding in many areas yes because 
there is a hilly region that never used to flood. Like people have been living there for thousands of years and those area never flooded in the lifetime of all those generations. And the river overflowed and it completely washed off the city and everything and almost uh, three or two, yeah, almost at the height of like two, three feet height, it completely washed away the region. So it, it's something which never used to happen. So just a few days of uh, rainfall, it actually flooded the area. So it's like an out of like yeah. we cannot predict or anything. So so that might impact. Yeah. Happens at any time. With excess rain, then immediately there is some use of landslide. Yeah, and I guess it's this event has, you know, in Malaysia and I'm sure in India as well, um, I think it's really taught us a lot about, um, you know, how are we treating our environment and, you know, and that can have a huge impact on, on you know, the, the effects of, you know, how we treat the environment. And I think we've really had to learn that lesson, I think, in Malaysia recently. Um, and I know you've been doing a lot of work actively for floods um, in Kerala. So, you know, thank you so much for what you've done there. And I think we have a lot to learn as well from the work that you've done there. Um, if I am to move slightly now, uh, John, towards youth activism, uh, because our show really is about millennials and youths sort of taking charge um, in the world and doing things that have impact. Um, there is something that was really interesting in one of your articles that I read um, or an article that you were featured in. And in that article, you mentioned that um, youths are often sidelined to smaller side events and not included in high level uh, meetings where actual um, policy decisions are made. Um, why do you think this happens and how can we change this? Yeah, so uh, many times we consider the merit of someone based on age and also uh, based on the kind of uh, like qualifications or anything which they have. So, uh, for instance, like if, if there is an experienced uh, person who is 30 years old or well-educated, then if there is someone who is 60 years old, then the person who is 60 years old get more preference because age is considered as something more important than anything else. So even in many people quote, like, I have lived more uh, more than you and I am 70 years old. I have li lived and seen the world more than you. So even if that happens to many scientists, because when many scientists say or bring that goes for any social scientist or the science, uh, scientists from pure science, if they bring up uh, something new, then they say like uh, many people bring the idea of like, ageism to the fact that our life predates your uh, like science or anything. So that's something which impacts youth as well, because if there's any young scientist or even if there is like a youth activist. So it's one thing is because young people should have a say in future because throughout these generations, we have been living a life which uh, our like predecessors set. For instance, my parents uh, kind of set uh, like a timeline or tagline for uh, our generations and when they re uh, retire then our generations take from there so when the moment we take from there we almost reach our old age yeah, uh, yeah yeah so uh so that so that that is one issue because when we should get something when it's needed so as young people like for instance like, like i said like if if a, if a youth from rural area when he he or she reaches 12 of 13, he have like, she have like different uh, view of the world and different knowledge which they get. But someone who is 13 in cities, they have like an experience of someone who is 18 years old. Similarly, uh, someone who is in India versus someone in US. So at 18 years, someone in US have an experience of 20, 25 years. 
So that itself uh, translates to like hearing other voices. So that, uh, for instance, the example of Greta. So Greta got that thinking of uh, someone who is like 2025 because of that education system and uh, uh, like all those in cultural influences. So to get that kind of influences, we need uh, that kind of education and the kind of training in India. But again, at some with the traditional viewpoint on all those things comes, there are even those young people who, in India as well who thinks at the age of 15 or even at nine, who could actually kind of question the leadership and the kind of directions which they take. So because it's our future which is being threatened and it's our uh, culture or our like the future which we want to live in is changing due to the policies. So even if we take the example of the world, we have like young leaders being part of like recent elections in Chile, uh, the president, he's young, seeing people coming in the forefront then we young people we vote that at the age of 18 but we cannot criticize the government or we cannot uh bringing uh, changes or we uh, to the policies and even we have like at the age of 18 or 21 we could get elected to local self-government so that itself like we have a system that acknowledge the like potential of young people but it is uh, something like sidelining to like small scale actions and small public policy because in this large uh, policy discussions over actions, there are corporates, a lot of uh, money, business involved. So if young people comes up there, there will be drastic change in all those things and there will be more accountability and transparency, especially if a woman or young a woman or young girls comes there. So that's why there is always side learning of young people because if we get involved, then there will be a lot of changes happening to uh, this uh, like kind of system which we are following because we are always in process of learning and we always experiment new things and kind of uh, like kind of outcast existing systemic injustice. Yeah. Well, I think that's really interesting, and I and and what you've mentioned there is actually something that I've um, come to learn a lot from you know the guests that we've had on the show. Lots of um, the millennials that I've spoken to, their story is very similar to yours um, in the sense that, you know, they feel as though their voice has always been sort of sidelined and and not, you know, put into real importance because of their age. And, um, you know, there's a lot of this ageism rhetoric that goes on in our lives as millennials. And um, do you think that that is an issue that is... Um, that is specific to our Asian culture, or do you think that that is something that is a challenge or a problem, um, you know, globally? What would you say, John? Yeah, uh, it's a global challenge, but there are ways in which how it's being felt and the kind of situations. Because, for instance, in some spaces in Western world, there there is more involvement of like young people, but there is some restricted spaces. But when we say of global south, there is like more of a restricted space rather than like open spaces, and that is due to cultural influence than those conservative orthodox mentalities which we have, especially those uh, begins from families itself, because like if we doesn't have that opportunity to like expand or reform things within the family, like uh, giving young people as well, like future generation as well a voice, then that itself uh, uh, shows how uh, like demeaning or regressive the future societies or even the society in general will be. So if we could question uh, within our family or if we could reform within our family, then that itself shows like we have better capability to question what's happening in society. 
but in western world i think there is like more space to like uh, openness within the family as well as like all are being treated equally including women uh, like more openness and also like we could also question the things and there's also like roles being given at a family as well as if we sometimes if we are young, here in global south we doesn't get that role to engage in family business or activities rather we have like a kind of have to follow this conventional way of like uh what say like uh, studies then employment then family then after even if we get uh, in, get in the family then itself we have like a lot of control within ourselves because we doesn't get that independency but i think in, in western where like even if we are really very young we kind of uh, they kind of have like more of independence whether it's uh, choosing their accommodations or education or even in their kind of living and like kind of vocational education they earn pay for themselves so there are like a lot of changes in which how this kind of society progresses so one i often quote is the how uh, like the kind of social transformation which we have so here in india like women still fight for uh, going outside their home but in the west people are fighting for abortion rights so you could see the gap of social advancement which we kind of uh, want to reach so when when they time india uh, like kind of fight for uh, abortion rights then the west might be something far ahead so that is a kind of uh, lag we have in a social transformation yeah yeah no i think that's a really important point and but i also think that you know like uh, when we talk about abortion rights versus you know the challenges or, or the things that women are fighting for in in india or in malaysia i think there is a a very cultural element to the things that we fight for as well um you know obviously in malaysia we are a society that you know in 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 the offset we seem as though a society that's very patriarchal um but you know we do have lots of things that we do provide women that you know makes us seem i guess in other ways more progressive than other countries and i know likewise with india as well um but i think like you said you know the 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 challenges and the things that we fight for are different in our countries um and i guess we we do have you know many steps to you know to to take before we reach um you know the point of development or a developed country i guess in that sense um but yeah really interesting points there uh john uh we're coming to the end of the show john and i um i always have this question at the end uh, of the show that i ask um all our millennial climate activists um and i would like your opinion on it as well and um my question is what is one myth about climate action that you disagree with uh so if it's an indian context like uh, it's about climate change itself like many says like climate change is like natural there used to be climate change so people say it's natural like we can't do anything so that itself is like very much myth like uh, climate denialism because climate denialism means the denial of uh, climate science because climate science says humans caused the current climate change but many there there used to be like 97% of uh, Uh, scientists saying uh, is uh, caused by humans and there used to be 3% of the science which focused on climate denial and their recent study says it's only 1% now so the 99% scientists agree that climate change is caused by humans so that itself is like and to counter that myth we have the science and also the story of global south and even global north the climate crisis being felt across the globe Well, I think that's a really important point and I think um well that's a new thing in fact that I've learned today climate um 
denying that you know there is in fact uh, climate um, issues or climate problems. Um, but anyway, thank you so much, John. I think there was, this was a really interesting podcast, and we learned so much about um, about the work that you do, as well as um, you know the the climate action work that's happening in India right now. Um, and it's interesting that there are a, a, so many similarities between what's happening in India right now with what's happening in Malaysia. Um, and yeah, it's it's been it's really it's been really nice to talk to you, uh, John. Thank you. Yeah, it was a great, uh, wonderful conversation and also insightful. And even I learned a lot from the issues which uh, happened in Malaysia and happening. So it's, yeah, it has like a lot of similarity because the issue is like climate crisis. So it's always affecting people and lives. So that itself is a similarity. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Absolutely. Thank you so much, uh, John. Um, take care. Thanks.